Good morning. There we go. There we go. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it to First Peter chapter 2. Um, we have delayed, I have chosen to delay beginning the Gospel of John for a few more weeks. And this morning, we'll be kind of doing an epilogue, postlude to Habakkuk. We finished going through the book of Habakkuk in seven weeks. And next Sunday, we're going to begin a five-week series about the, the Bride of Christ, the church, our local church, and those relationships. And then, in August, we should be beginning our study of John. And the reason I thought this was a timely passage, edifying, helpful passage, is if you remember, Habakkuk has just been told by the Lord God that he's giving Israel over to the Babylonians, a people more wicked than even Israel, even as Habakkuk has laid out his complaint against Israel. How do you live faithfully among pagans? How do you live faithfully with wicked rulers, neighbors, governors? How do you, how do you live faithfully as sojourners and exiles? What does God call us to to do? What does that look like? Um, when we started Habakkuk, I made the point that Israel and Israel only um, is the only nation in the history of the earth to personally be in a covenant ratified with God. So when God takes Israel out of the land, it's exactly what he said he'd do in the book of Deuteronomy. And even as the Lord God deals with nations and he raises one up and he lowers another down, no other nation has had that relationship with the Lord that Israel had. The United States is not Israel. No other country is Israel. The church is not Israel. The church is not a geopolitical entity. And so, in one sense, if you are in First Peter, I think the context of First Peter fits our context very well. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They're scattered around the Roman Empire. Persecution has driven them out, and he's writing to the scattered abroad over the known world church, and that church is beginning to taste some suffering and persecution. Look down to um, verses 6 through 7 of chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. These, this fledgling church scattered is starting with their faith tested. Let me get some further insight if you turn over to chapter 4 of the types of testing, including persecution. And they're surprised by this. We, we can be surprised. It shouldn't surprise us when we live in an evil and fallen world, when we live among pagans. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. It's not that we have to like it. It's not that we have to become masochists. But we ought not to be surprised or vexed. Insofar, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So where we're going to start reading this morning, First uh, Peter 2, 11 to 17, picks up pretty much exactly where Peter shifts from doctrinal heavy instruction to practical heavy instruction. Similar to the Apostle Paul, Peter begins the book with truth. 
Truth about who they are in Christ. Truth about what Christ has done for them. And then, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, he begins to instruct the scattered, persecuted, suffering, tested church how to live in the Roman Empire. How to live spread out. And so I think this passage is, is relevant for us. The passage actually goes all the way through at least 3, 8. Um, no, yeah, 3, 8. But we're just going to look at uh, 11 to 17. So I'd like to begin by reading the passage. We'll have a word of prayer and we'll begin our study. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Lord God, I pray that you would give us grace to receive this instruction, that we would hear it apply it, that our good deeds might silence the ignorance of foolish people, that when our enemies and adversaries attempt to speak evil of us, they, they end up giving you praise. Lord, help us to, to be obedient to what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at this in two points. In verses 11 through 12, it's sort of general principles for living. How to relate to the culture, the society, and then picking up in verses 13 to 17, specifically relating to government. So we'll just dive in. Live godly and convicting lives. Live godly and convicting lives. And he's tender, begins with a direct personal command. Beloved, I urge you. That's one of the markers that we're moving into the section of the book that's going to have more exhortations, more imperative verbs. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So he's urging them. And what he's urging them to do is to live as if this world were not your home. As sojourners and exiles. This, this links all the way back to Abraham, this phrase. Abraham, he's... Um, his wife, his first wife, has died. He's mourning her. He's looking for a place to bury her. And he's not in the land God is going to give him. And in Genesis 23, 3-4, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for buying a place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So, the picture is God's promised Abraham a land. He's not in it. He's not in where God has promised him. In his possession, in his home, he's a sojourner, an alien. So this becomes the picture of the Christian. This world is not your home. Your citizenship is elsewhere. And, and the first mark of how we live in a godless society and culture is 
be aware. This is not your home. You're in the world, but not of the world. That's the basis, Jesus says, why the world won't like you. So the first danger is to, to mistake this world as our home, to start putting our hopes, our aspirations, our goals in this world. It's, it's not. We're, we're aliens and sojourners. Do the good you can do. Be faithful. Do it recognizing you're in a foreign land. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But he's not just wanting us to live as sojourners and exiles, but he's wanting us to engage in a resistance movement that's not geopolitical, not, not in this world. It is political. Wars are carried out by nations and armies. There's, there, there is a political war going on, and it's not the war in Ukraine. It's the war for your soul. That, that's the war you need to focus on. Oh, by all means, do the good you can do in this world. I'm not minimizing that. I'm trying to emphasize the reality. We can be distracted if we think this world is our home, that we don't pay attention to our true citizenship and the true war that's taking place for our souls. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the contention that matters. That's the conflict that has eternal consequences. And, and the first thing he tells them is don't get distracted. Rome's not your home. Corinth isn't your home. Cappadocia isn't your home. You're a stranger. You're an alien. You have a homeland somewhere else. And so you're going to live differently. You're going to wage war differently. Your priorities are going to be different. That's, that's the first instruction for Hezekiah and, and Habakkuk, not Habakkuk, Habakkuk and the Israelites going to Babylon. Babylon's not your home. You're going to live there for 80 years. You're going to build houses. You're going to have sons and daughters. Do good you can there. That's not the land God promised you. God is preparing a place for us that is ultimately where our citizenship is from. And we should live as though we are those expatriates in this world. And then waging in the war that matters, which is fundamentally internal. Fundamentally internal. That's our first priority. And historically, the church again and again can be so upset on what's going on out there that we stop paying attention to what's going on in here. And the result is really ugly. Christ did not like people who are like cups clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. The Pharisees are the poster childs for people pointing the fingers at others and not dealing with the battle inside. So the first instruction, how to live faithfully in a pagan land, is live as if this world is not your home and engage in the war that matters, the war for your soul. These passions he's talking about, he's mentioned already in chapter 1. Turn back to 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions, same word, of your former ignorance, but as he called you as holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Our, our passions, our desires wage war. They want us to, and, and it, the world follows the passions. The world celebrates the passions. You'll find plenty of people cheering you on. You're not of this world. Resist the passions of the flesh. Engage in the war that has eternal consequence. 
Abstain from fleshly desires that wage war against you. Turn to chapter 4. We see some of what this looks like. Chapter 4. Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself in the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices to do what the Gentiles want to do. You see the distinction? You're not the Gentiles. They are Gentiles, but they're not the Gentiles because they're Christians. Then he lists it. Want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So, those are the types of things Peter has in mind. And if they begin to view Rome as their home, they will be swept away in the same current that Rome was swept away in. There's always a zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, particular sins given to a particular time. And we need to start by recognizing that this, these aren't our people in, in a very real sense. This isn't our country in a very real sense. Oh, it is in another. And Paul can speak of my kinsmen according to the flesh. I'm not trying to diminish that. The spiritual reality that you have been bought by the living God, redeemed as his sons and daughters, made part of his household, and are going to rule in a kingdom that he is preparing for you, trumps, supersedes your earthly nationality. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Do not lose sight of that. So living godly and convicting lives. First, we get the direct command. Second, point B, the manner and purpose of the command. Peter doesn't just say the what, but why. Why, why is it important for Christians to, to, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Literally, it's keeping. He's further describing what he wants us to do. Verse, verse 12 um, is, is further describing that. Keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keeping your conduct is the manner and the purpose of the command. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Literally good, good conduct. So here's, here's God's purpose and concern. Not only is your resisting the passions of the flesh, the battle of your own soul, but God intends there to be an audience. And he intends, his plan is that his people would be a visible display of good conduct. This is a theme that runs through this chapter. The power of a good witness, of a good testimony, of good deeds, in particular in suffering and mistreatment. That, that's the particular context that God has in mind for the light of his lamp to shine. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice it's not if. He's going to tell them a little later, don't, don't be surprised. Doesn't mean you need to enjoy it. Just don't be surprised. Understand the darkness hates the light. They're going to look for reasons to speak evil about you. Once they understand what you believe, once they understand what you love, it will offend them. They will speak evil against you. The goal is that when they try to do that, they actually give God glory. 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He wants them to see your good deeds. And I'll show you how this is a theme in this section. And the picture, again, is a humble, obedient people focusing on personal holiness, focusing on good conduct, and God using that as a powerful witness to win others. Look look at his counsel to wives in chapter 3, which this is the same section. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You you see how this theme works through here? There's an unbelieving audience watching, paying attention. You you better believe they're paying attention to us. Primarily because they want to point out perceived hypocrisy. They're, They're watching. And God's intention is that when they watch, they see good deeds and they try to speak evil against us and in practice what they actually do is glorify God. They see your good deeds, and they glorify God on the day of visitation. That's an interesting phrase, day of visitation. It's possible here that Peter is taking two sayings of Jesus and and putting them together. This sounds like, in part, Matthew 5, 16, which says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That sounds like part of what he just said. The other part of what he said sounds a little like Luke 19 when Jesus sees Jerusalem as he's approaching to die. When he drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So as best as I can understand it, it's this. You put those two things together. The time of visitation is the day the gospel comes to town. Here is literally Jesus showing up. And for good or for ill, for, for them coming to faith and being convicted by this spirit as they remember about how you turned the other cheek, how you blessed those who cursed you, how you went two miles with the one who asked you for one, or whether it be on the day of judgment, when because they rejected so much light, their condemnation is greater, whether it be for judgment or salvation, God's purpose is they would, att- they would see your good deeds and give God glory. That's what God intends for us to do in a dark world. It's just not a plan we're necessarily excited about. I can, I can give you one example of how this works. I've heard of one. Um, a friend of mine told me they were at Simpson College. They were in the cafe, I think. And they overheard one of the professors and one of the students talking about our church. And understand, Simpson College Religious Department very different belief system, if you could call it a belief system, than, than what we believe here. Very, very much more mainline, very much more LGBTQ plus XYZ affirming, and they hate what we believe. And they were talking about it, and this was in a phase where we were having a pretty significant ministry to Simpson students, and it was frustrating them. And they said, I, I love this, I'd get this on a shirt. <laughs> no, no, wait till you hear it, wait till you hear it. I think it's good, but you might not. They said, they believe, isn't it awful how kind and loving they are because they believe such terrible things? 
I thought, that is perfect. No, but the, from their vantage point, the, it was that we were deceiving naive college students because we were really nice and really kind and really loving and getting them to believe these terrible things. And I thought, man, that, that is, if that isn't what this means, that they may see your good deeds, they mean to speak evil against you, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's exactly how it ought to work. They're trying to slander us, and they're giving God glory. I was never prouder of this body than when I heard that. That, that was fantastic. That was fantastic. Okay, we gotta, we got to move on. Glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's, that's, that's the picture. And you're going to see the same theme appear in the next chunk as well, this notion of our good deeds before others having an effect. God wanting us to be an advertisement, coming attractions, or an embassy of his kingdom, if you want to use a different metaphor. Point two, how are we to live faithfully in a pagan land? To be obedient and respectful citizens. To be obedient and respectful citizens. Um, so, so if you view the first two verses as in general to your society, to your neighborhood, to your people, here's a more focused point. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors that sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So, point A, that the fundamental command here is to be, and literally it's passive, be subjected. That's your blank. Not be subject, be subjected. I think the idea is allow yourself to be subjected. I think there are plenty of authorities in this world that will want to put you under subjection. And he's saying don't resist it, allow it. Don't, don't fight against it. To be subjected, to submit. And the, the, the notion is one of properly ordering up under authority. The military is probably the clearest idea of a, of a chain of command. And you're not resisting where you fit in that chain of command. You are moving into your slot, recognizing those above and those below you. Recognizing your authorities above and those you have responsibility below. That's the fundamental notion of to be subject. And here, be subjected. Now, begins making it clear, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake. We don't like submission. And we're called to do it not because our governors and our senators and our president deserve it. We're, we're called to do it because Christ deserves it. And because he suffered and submitted on our behalf, and he bought us and he redeemed us, he bore our sins on the cross, he has the right to tell us to be subject to them. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 3, in this discussion of subjection, we are able to obey this command knowing that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. It's in the knowledge that all power, all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth has been subjected to Christ that we can then obey him and subject ourselves and be subjected to these other authorities. That's, that's the notion. Because he has subjected all things to himself. We do it for the Lord's sake. And, and that's important to me because inevitably whenever we're up against an authority, we, we will point out we don't like them, they're not qualified, they don't deserve it, they're an oath, whatever. Doesn't matter. He doesn't say do it for their sake. He says do it for the Lord's sake. This is Christian worship. 
being subjected to earthly authorities is worship to the living Christ or it's rebellion to the living Christ. Those are the two ways you can have it, and there's no third. And it's not because of who they are, it's because of who he is, for the Lord's sake. Then notice the next unqualified statement, to every human institution. He'll give us some examples, but this is, that's, that's a pretty unqualified statement. Literally, every human creature or creation. And I think the idea is this. The various authority structures that exist in this time, this epoch, and this world. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise to do good. So he gives two examples at first. First, to the emperor or the king, some of your translations say, as the one who has authority. Now, inevitably, because we don't like authority and we don't like submission, we don't like to obey, we don't like to be told what to do, it doesn't change. I mean, my, my two-year-olds don't like being told what to do and I don't like being told what to do. I'm just more sophisticated at how I say no. Right? They, they're, they're at least not being dishonest about it. They're just letting the rebellion right out in their sleeve. And so you'll say, well, we don't have an emperor. We don't have a king. Doesn't matter. The, the Greek word basileus in the most authoritative, accurate Greek lexicon I could find gave this rendering of the meaning for basileus. One who rules as the possessor of the highest political office. We have somebody like that in our country, don't we? We have somebody in the highest political office. And you say, but I voted for him. Sure, you voted for him to be your authority. He exercises authority. We we have this. We we do. President Joseph Biden is this for us today and now. We are submitted to the king as unto one in authority, to governors as those sent by him to punish evil and to praise good And the idea here is top to bottom. Again, we want to limit this to just one or two people. It's it's the whole kit and caboodle. This means mayors and town officials. This, This means congressmen, senators, and judges. This 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 is this is the whole thing. And again, we 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 bristle at this. We, and we, we come up with some clever, other clever excuses. We say, um, well, this is the one I hear most commonly. Because here we're told God's purpose for human authority is to, to punish evil and to praise good. And the same thing shows up in Romans 13. Of course it does. What people will say is, well, um, I will give honor to them when they're doing that. And if I don't think they're doing that, if I think they're actually praising evil and punishing good, well, then my obligations are removed. Um, We'll come to that objection in just a moment. But first, I want to notice next, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not an exhaustive list. Why do I say that? Because, if you'll notice, verse 18 picks up the theme of submission. And grammatically, it's clear it's linked. There's only one finite verb, one imperative command. Be submitted. Subject yourselves. 18 is a participle. It links back to 13. What he's saying, in fact, is the way slaves or servants obey this is to be in subjection to their own masters. And then we get the example of Jesus Christ at the end of chapter 2, how he submitted to the Roman authorities. And then starting in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, linking back to what came before, wives being subject. Do you see the continuous train of thought? He's giving more categories. There's a submission in marriage. 
as a submission, if you're a servant or a slave, there's the example of Jesus. This isn't an exhaustive list. When he says every human institution, he means every human institution. That, that means, for those of you with kids in the public school, they're teachers. This means when you go to renew your driver's license, the particular person in authority to give you your driver's license. As you're dealing with his sphere of authority, be subject to him. That's, that's what he's saying. Point four, not only when they rule well. Not only when they rule well. The, the knee-jerk explanation for why we don't need to submit to authority is because they're bad authorities. In a fallen world with human authorities, guess what? They're always going to rule imperfectly. Always. But the reason I can say this strongly is in every example Peter uses, he picks examples of bad, ungodly rule. So I, I, I know people will tell me this, that when, when, when the governor, when the king, when the president is praising good and punishing evil, then I'll be happy to submit. Then if, if Peter's only saying to do this when they're fulfilling their function well, why does every example he gives following this show them misusing, abusing and, and corrupting their authority. Just, just read verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He's, he's picturing a slave master who beats his slave for doing good. That, that's, that's his context. He's saying this holds true even then. That, that's what he's saying. Then he gives the example of Jesus. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. that You might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. And Peter's point, do you see what type of redemptive work God can do when his people willingly submit for his sake to human authorities? You were redeemed and purchased and saved and forgiven precisely because the Son of Man submitted to sinful rule. Hallelujah. Amen. But then we turn around and say, that, that's okay for him, but not for me. <sighs> we forget who we are. And we forget who he is. Not only when they rule well. One other example. Paul, in Acts 25. Paul is being flogged by the religious leaders. And he rebukes them. He says, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I... Oh, no, sorry. Wrong passage, 23, 3 through 5. Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, why do you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, point five, this, this command is not without exception. There are times where we don't obey. There are times where we don't submit. And Peter himself gives us them. In Acts 
chapter 4. They called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In Acts 5, 28 through 29, they strictly charge, we strictly charge you not to teach in the name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. To put it simply, your government cannot command you to do what God forbids or forbids you to do what God commands. And I've seen uh, Pastor Coates and others in Canada having to disregard to not submit to the commands to not gather because we've been commanded not to forsake assembling ourselves together. Oh, yeah, there, there are times. Daniel, I'd, I'd encourage you this weekend. Go home, read Daniel. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there are, they are poster childs, models of giving honor to the king and yet knowing when they can't bend, knowing when they can't obey. There are models of that. They, they, they have no problem looking the king in the face saying, King, we're not, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. Daniel opens his windows boldly, praying to his God. And yet, there are also models of good citizenship. Daniel's high up in the echelons as an advisor to three successive regimes. Yeah. So there, there are exceptions when we're being told to sin, we're being forbidden to do what is right. But, but please don't think the excuse, they're a poor, corrupt ruler, justifies your non-submission to them. Every example Peter has given, and I'll look at the third one, wives, right? He's not thinking of a wife submitting to a godly husband. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. These are word not obeying husbands. Surely then you can do what you want. Nope. And it's precisely because such fearful God-honoring conduct is what Peter is saying will be used by God to win them to faith. There are stakes at this. Our soul is at stake, the war for our soul, and the salvation of your neighbor is at stake, and the glory of God is at stake. Point B, i got to move. God's purpose in our submission. And again, it's the same theme we saw back earlier, that our deeds should be seen by the world, and that being seen, they should silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, he doesn't say specifically seen, but the logic is implicit. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That only makes sense if those foolish people are observing what we're doing and therefore have nothing to say. Again, we've got back to this notion of an audience. God cares how we live, not for our sake only, but also for the watching world's sake. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is what happened with Jesus, right? They had nothing to say against him. They tried to condemn him, and they couldn't because he lived blamelessly. The problem for many of us is precisely because we chafe and kick and grumble at authority. The world's got plenty of ill to speak against us, and much of it will stick and should stick because it's ungodly. Next, the manner of our submission. The manner of our submission. Now, Peter wants to make it clear. The message is not, we're little peons, we're nobodies, and just suck it up. We, precisely because we have been freed by Christ, we can serve in this way. Live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, or better yet, slaves of God. God has freed you. He's purchased you out of this world. Links all the way back to the first command to his sojourners and exiles to abstain. But it's because he's freed you, and it's because you've become obedient slaves to him, he says, in that capacity, go serve. So yes, you can know perfectly well that your rulers in this land, President Biden, in one sense, I'm, I'm freed from this, I'm purchased. But my new master commands me, and he has all authority. And President Biden is under his authority, as every ruler in this world is under his authority, because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so my king and lord has told me to do this because he wants the watching neighbors and world to see something and their mouths to shut just as they shut in silence when they tried to condemn his son. That's his desire. That's his desire. Live as free men who are slaves to God. Live as free men who are slaves to God. And then not using our freedom to excuse our own evil. He's well aware of what we can do. He's well aware of the arguments we can make. I'm just defending righteousness. I'm just standing up for truth. Perhaps you are. Are you doing it in your proper sphere of authority, lined up under the authorities God has given you? Or are you doing it in a rebellious way, not making our freedom to excuse evil? Not using our freedom to excuse evil. Finally, point D. The attitude of our submission. We've seen the purpose of our submission, the manner of our submission, now the attitude of our submission. And what shows up in verse 17 is kind of a summary statement. The overarching pattern of what should govern us. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's just work through these quickly. Give honor to all. Give honor to all. And I think that's probably the place where we can really neglect these commands the most. We know at a certain point that if we lie on our taxes, if we speed too much, if we disobey Caesar enough, some people are going to show up with some badges and want to talk to us. And so we generally don't push it far in that direction. But social media has opened up a whole other avenue where we can do dishonoring and get likes for it. Honor. This is the same command given to children to their parents in Ephesians 6 too. Honor. Respect. And there are respectful and honoring ways to strongly disagree with people. Get that. This isn't saying to be lapdogs and yes men. This is talking about honor and respect. There are honoring and respectful ways to strongly disagree. Look at Daniel. Look at his three friends when they have to say no to Nebuchadnezzar. But what they don't do is because now is the time we have to say no, start getting an attitude and sneering and mocking and ridiculing. Give honor to all. And I think this can tend to be a vice more for men than women. I could be wrong. It may just be that I spend more time with men where I can observe these things. But man... I know that our duty of honor is differing in different relationships. A wife's duty to honor her husband, the honor she owes her husband is different than the honor a child owes a parent, but they're not so dissimilar. And I just want to challenge you with this. (laughs) 
Do not speak about your president, your officials, in ways you would not accept your children to speak to you. And in tones of voice and condescension and snide mockery that you would be ashamed if your wife did it to you. But we will boldly go on social media. We will boldly tell the world just how disgusted we are, how stupid they are. It's rebellion and defiance to God. Stand up for the truth. Fight for life. I rejoice. I wept with tears with the recent Supreme Court ruling. Praise God for that. And I will do what I can to to further the cause of life, including having strong disagreements with some of our elected officials, if the case may be. But I pray that I'll do it respectfully, with honor. Just, Just because this is the place where we have to disagree doesn't mean we stop being honorable and respectful. This is, this is through and through all the passages, through Romans 13. This is through, listen, listen turn, turn to Titus 3. Turn to Titus 3. This isn't just Peter. This is the New Testament. This is the Bible. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and hating one another. This is, this, is, this is New Testament teaching. This isn't just Peter. There may well be times you need to say no. There may well be times you need to say, I can't do that. Or I have to do what God commands, not what you say. There's never a time where we're told to do it not in a respectful way. There's, there's no virtue in rebellion. There, there isn't. Give honor to all. Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Um, we'll be talking about that in the next couple of weeks in a series on church life. And because we have communion, I've got to move. Finally, fear God and honor the king. Fear God. And honor the king. And again, this is linked theologically. Because we fear the living God, we give honor to the one to whom the living God tells us to give honor. As it said in the military, you respect the rank. You respect the rank, right? You tell a child to try to honor their parents, even if their parents are dishonorable. I hope you'd encourage a wife to try to honor her husband, even if he's acting shamefully. You respect the rank and position because you fear God. Because you fear God. Fear God, honor the king. Get this, God's purpose in this is that we would follow the model of Christ. That's where this passage goes. Looking at verse 21 again. For to this you've been called. What is this? Willful submission to mistreatment by authority. That, That has to be what it is. 
That's the example. You, you tell me what else you want to plug this into in verse 21. For to this you've been called. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. When he was reviled, he took to Facebook. No. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he got even. No. You mess with the bull, you get the horns. No. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Oh, there will be a recompense and a payback for the mistreatment of the Son of God. And there will be a recompense and a payback for every mistreatment, indignity, and wrong you suffer. The question is, can you trust and entrust yourself to God's judgment and timetable? Or will you take that upon yourself because it's too slow for your liking? Christ is waiting the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made a footstool for him. And you and I say, no, we need it now. Fear God. Honor the King. Love the brothers. Give honor to everyone. I'm going to close in order of prayer. I'm going to prepare for a time of communion. I know this is challenging and hard. And it's been hammering me all week. But this is God's instructions to us living in a dark world. For the sake of our souls, for the sake of our neighbors, he intends to be glorified as the world tries to speak evil of us and they come up with nothing because we're living honorable lives. And so they end up giving praise to God. Let's pray, Lord God. Help us to see our citizenship in heaven, to not view this world as our home, but you are our king, you are our master, you have bought and redeemed us. And because all authority has been given to the risen Christ, we can submit to these lesser earthly authorities, knowing that they are under him, knowing that you will avenge in your time, knowing that you will judge justly, knowing that our Savior redeemed us by such submission. Give us the faith to follow in his footsteps, to not view ourselves as having more honor than him. In Jesus' name. Amen.